The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There are questions here that are much greater than the nuts and bolts propriety of whether or not the FBI and Department of Justice followed procedures. There, there's a bigger issue here about whether or not, you know, these leaks were bad and whether or not they merited a response this large and whether or not it is appropriate to learn more information from the current Department of Justice administration about the behavior of the past administration to satisfy ourselves. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 15th, 2021. A spree of stories has emerged over the last week or so that the Justice Department, under the prior administration, obtained phone and email records of several journalists and several members of Congress and staffers and even family members. It's provoked a mini-scandal calls for investigation, howls of rage, and serious questions. To discuss it all and figure out what we can say, we gathered in the virtual jungle studio Gabe Rotman of the Reporters Committee for Freedom of the Press, Pete Strzok, formerly of the FBI, Lawfare Senior Editor Quinta Jurecic, and Berkeley Law Professor and Lawfare Contributing Editor Oren Kerr. We covered a lot of ground. What do we really know about these stories and what happened in these investigations? Was it legal? Was it legitimate? How should it be investigated? And by whom? And what does it mean that none of the prior attorneys general or deputy attorney generals seem to remember it? It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 15th, the Justice Department. Congress, and the press. Okay, before we get started, after we recorded what follows, the House Judiciary Committee issued a statement that reads, in part, recent reports suggest that during the Trump administration, the Department of Justice used criminal investigations as a pretext to spy on President Trump's perceived political enemies It remains possible that these cases, which now include members of Congress, members of the press, and President Trump's own White House counsel, are isolated incidents. Even if these reports are completely unrelated, they raised serious constitutional and separation of powers concerns. Congress must make it extraordinarily difficult, if not impossible, 
for the department to spy on the Congress or the news media. We should make it hard for prosecutors to hide behind secret gag orders for years at a time. We cannot rely on the department alone to make these changes, unquote. The House Judiciary Committee consequently announced that it will investigate the former administration's surveillance of, quote, members of Congress, the news media, and others, unquote. This postdated the recording of this podcast, so please bear that in mind as you listen to the following. So, Quinta, I want to start with you. Bring us up to speed. I thought we were done discussing Mike Flynn and the investigation of him. How did this all come back? It is a pretty tangled tale, so I will give you the the overview as best I can. Essentially, all this has come to light more or less over the past month. It was sparked by a series of disclosures from the Justice Department under Attorney General Merrick Garland to various news organizations, so the Washington Post, CNN, and the New York Times, that the department had, in some cases, sought, in some cases, sought and obtained uh, phone and email records from various reporters at those news organizations. In the case of the Washington Post reporters, it seems, based on the time frame from which the, the data was requested, that the investigation may have involved a story the Post reported about a conversation between Jeff Sessions, who was at the time on the Trump campaign, with Russian Ambassador Sergei Kislyak about the campaign, or perhaps about Obama administration efforts to counter Russian interference in the 2016 election. The subject of the CNN uh, request is unclear, but the the Justice Department was seeking records for a Pentagon reporter, Barbara Starr. And then when it comes to the New York Times, the Times indicates that the subject matter that the department was investigating seems to involve a story that the paper published about FBI Director James Comey's decision on how to handle the Clinton email investigation, which uh, involved a mysterious document uh, of Russian origin that was misleading in nature um, and which led Comey, so he said, to change the the way he had handled the email investigation. It's pretty tangled. We can get into that more later if you like. Essentially, according to the New York Times, the Trump administration had pursued a leak investigation into whether Comey was a source for that Times story. And so the, the suggestion is essentially that these records from reporters at the department may have sought those records as part of that leak investigation. So that's sort of part one of the story. <laughs> part two of the story, or maybe part 1A, is that it later turned out that the Times and uh, CNN, the executives and lawyers at those organizations, were placed under a gag order over requests for records of their reporters. And then the other part of the story is that on June 10th, the New York Times broke the story that in 2017-2018, the Justice Department had successfully requested that Apple hand over email metadata and account information from a variety of people linked to the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, so now Chairman Adam Schiff, uh, Representative Eric Swalwell, as well as committee aides and family members, including uh, at least one minor. And Apple also received a gag order. 
according to Chairman Schiff, the Justice Department informed him in May that the investigation was closed. But this news, I think, really revitalized the discussion that had been circulating so far about these uh, requests for information from reporters. Congress pretty predictably was irate, I would say. Um, and there was a great deal of discussion about sort of what what would happen next. On June 11th, uh, Justice Department Inspector General Michael Horowitz announced that he would be investigating these investigations after these demands from Congress. There's also some some sort of odd little loose ends here about whether or not um, Attorney General Bill Barr Previous Attorney General Jeff Sessions and uh, Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein were aware of these uh, requests at the time. They they all say that they don't recall. And also, I should note that the Justice Department apparently, according to the Washington Post, also requested information from then White House Counsel Don McGahn in February 2018, while he was still White House Counsel. So all of this is is a bit confusing. There is a lot we don't know, uh, but that is, I think, the the picture as we now understand it as of uh, Monday, June 14th at around 4 p.m. So Gabe, before any of this broke, uh, you wrote uh, with Bruce Brown, your colleague at the Reporters Committee, a piece for lawfare in which you gave advice or, or rec- policy recommendations to the Attorney General about how to handle media leak investigations in the future, as well as how to handle these past ones. Talk a little bit about when, if ever, it is appropriate for, in your view, for uh, such media subpoenas or subpoenas for phone and email records of of press people to take place. So I think in in this case, so before you know addressing the the that question, I mean one one thing here that's particularly important to note with these requests and with with other requests is that there is a set of uh, internal policy guidance at the Justice Department that governs when and how members of the department can seek information from uh, members of the press in, in leak investigations. And one of the key provisions there, and this was a change actually to the guidelines following controversies uh, under the Obama administration uh, when the Justice Department sought records from the phone records from the Associated Press uh, and the actual email content for, for James Rosen. There was a change to those guidelines requiring or putting in place a presumption of notice to the affected journalist or news organization before seeking to compel the production uh, of metadata like this, you know, or, or other types of investigative steps. The presumption of notice can can only be overcome if the attorney general makes certain determinations, and those those, those exceptions to that presumption of notice are are supposed to be pretty narrow: grave harm to national security, significant harm to an investigation, uh, or or threats to life and limb. And what's really important to know here is whether the presumption of notice provision in the guidelines was was strictly followed. You know, your, the question about when it's appropriate to see seize records from journalists, you know, the Justice Department itself recognizes uh, that such investigative steps are particularly sensitive, that if they're overbroad, you can identify sources beyond just the source that you're trying to identify in a specific uh, leak investigation. You can get visibility into what the newsroom is thinking about. And, and because of that, there are these, these guidelines in place at the Justice Department that are really there you know, to ensure that investigative steps like these occur only in the most extraordinary situations. 
Pete, you were part of the Russia investigation and were still involved in it at the time that the administration shifted. How should we understand this spree of subpoenas, both on the congressional side and on the media side? To what extent is is this what you would expect to see given Jim Comey's publicly expressed at the time anxiety about the leaks? I mean, he did say in public that he was very upset about the leaks and in congressional testimony that he was investigating them aggressively. Is this a a reasonable reflection of that? Or do you look at this pattern of, of data record acquisition and say, I had no idea this was going on? I think that that question I'd answer two ways. The first is that the leaks that we saw in 2016 and 2017, particularly surrounding Russia and the Trump campaign and then administration were unprecedented in volume compared to anything I saw over the course of my 20 year career. And having said that, I think the response, the governmental response to those leaks investigating, particularly the breadth of the activity, not only with the reporters, but then in, in getting some of this information about Congress was similarly unprecedented. And there's a difference in the answer about whether or not policies and procedures were followed versus whether or not that scope was appropriate, even if the policies were provided. And I do want to flag something, and and Oren's going to be much better qualified to talk about this than me. The word record is doing a lot of, carrying a lot of water in all of these cases. And it's different in all of these cases. How do you mean that? So a couple of things. So, so when you go out as an investigator, you typically want to know who your subject is communicating with. In the case of a media leak, you don't know who your subject is because you have a bunch of people typically that have access to that classified information. So the way you, one of the fundamental things as an investigator you try and do is look at people and who they communicated with. Now, historically, that was wire communications, which evolved to cellular communications. And a subpoena would allow you, and that a judge doesn't have to approve a subpoena, a subpoena allow, would allow you to go to a telecom and norm, please jump in if I get anything horribly wrong here. And that telecommunications provider would come back in response to a subpoena and say, yes, this phone number is owned by Pete. And if you ask for it, here are all the numbers that Pete dialed and all the numbers that dialed Pete. With the advent of the internet and a law called ECPA, the Electronic Communication Privacy Act, that addressed a number of things, but specifically email. And the law evolved to the point where a subpoena was not sufficient to get you the to and from type call type data, what traditionally would be called toll data. And so what that meant in the case of investigator, if I send a subpoena to Apple or to Google and say, tell me about this account, I'm not going to get much back. I'll probably get an account owner but not much more. If I want to get that equivalent of the dialed digits, you know, who was calling me and who was calling, not dialed digits is a bad term. If I want to get who dialed me and who I dialed, that equivalent in email, who I sent an email to, who received it, who I received it from, I'm going to need a court order. And typically that's going to be what's called a 2703D order, which is going to direct that and the judge has to approve. And that is going to give me that to, from, and some limited metadata. If I want the content, I've got to get a search warrant. But the problem here is the media, either because they're lazy or because they're ignorant, and those aren't exclusive to each other, is throwing around the term getting records and getting a, you know, a subpoena. But if you look at it, what Apple says is 
hey, we received a subpoena. Well, if Apple's receiving a subpoena, that's not a court order. They're not getting to and from data. They're not getting the kind of thing that when you hear Congressman Schiff or Congressman Swallow saying they got my records, well, they got whatever they could get, the government could get with a subpoena. And that's very different when you compare that to the New York Times. And the New York Times says, the government sent me a letter saying a court order had been acquired. And to me, that tells me that's a 2703D, which is much more inclusive data-wise. And so you know, the, the, the issue is that all of these terms are being thrown about. The New York Times is talking about metadata being obtained with the subpoena, which is misleading is probably too strong a word, but it's not, it, it's not entirely accurate. And I think that has had a net effect of confusing a lot of things, but it also explains why people like when I hear Rod Rosenstein or Attorney General Sessions or Attorney General Barr saying they hadn't heard about it, there's a very logical explanation for that and that the subpoena wasn't naming a congressman. The subpoena was naming an account saying who owns this. And the reason nobody knew it was a congressman is because the government didn't know it belonged to a congressman. So only upon return of those subpoena returns does the government say, oh gosh, this Apple account belongs to Adam Schiff or Eric Swalwell or somebody's kid. So it, it's it's a confusing area of law and investigation. And I think a lot of motivations are making it more confusing rather than less. All right, Oren, first of all, is Pete right that there may be much less here than meets the eye? Is it possible that this is a situation in which the Justice Department, you know, basically said, give us a list of, you know, who who's the owner of of, of this account? And turns out it's, you know, Eric Swalwell's kid or, or some staffer's kid, and this isn't a, a targeted effort to investigate members of Congress, but something much more anodyne than that? Yes, I think it's entirely possible. In fact, to my mind, it's, it's, it's likely that that's the case because Apple's going to be precise about whether we're talking about a subpoena or a 2703D court order uh, in all likelihood, whereas the media is less likely to understand the difference between those two. So if when I hear Apple say we responded to a subpoena, that likely just means the government did not go to a judge. They didn't get any transactional information. They just wanted to know who's behind, you know, Fred3245 at iCloud.com. And then it ends up being uh, a known name. And so that's what I suspect is going on. And so and that means there's a lot of coverage that makes it sound like the government targeted somebody or had somebody as a suspect in an investigation where if we're only talking about a subpoena, it strikes me as more likely that that person, it just so happened they were the name behind an account who was communicating with somebody else who was a possible suspect in the case. We, we don't know that. We, we, all we have, we're getting little pieces of news of the investigation. And, and so we're trying to piece together what's happening. But at least based on what we've heard, that's my guess about what was happening, at least with respect to the members of Congress and their families. Oren and Gabe, should we assume things are different with respect to the acquisition of data on uh, reporters? So we know that in the case of the three affected news organizations that were notified that their, their records had been seized, it seems very likely that it was a grand jury subpoena uh, for telephone toll records, which was successful in obtaining records 
from the third-party communications provider for each of those organizations. Just to clarify that, and the reason a subpoena would work in this context, but not in the congressional committee or staff context, is that we're now here dealing with phone records rather than email records. And so a subpoena can reach the toll transactions, whereas in the context of email, where you're under the Stored Communications Act, you need to do that through a 2703D order. Is that, am I understanding that right? Right, exactly, exactly. And so we don't know what happened with the Washington Post, but with both CNN and the New York Times, there was also uh, D orders in, in play. And in those cases, for the New York Times, uh, the D order for email non-content information uh, went to Google. And uh, as part of their contract, uh, Google resisted and insisted that it be able to notify at least the Times's uh, newsroom lawyer and in March, it was successful in getting that the gag order that attaches to uh, 2703D orders under another section, 2705B. Uh, it was successful in expanding that order to permit notification uh, of the Times' newsroom lawyer, who is then able to negotiate notice to senior executives and outside counsel, but not to anybody in the newsroom. And then in the CNN case, because one of the email addresses for Barbara Starr, the affected reporter, uh, was administered by Warner Media, the D order, as far as I understand it, went to Warner Media itself, which then notified the general counsel. But the general counsel there was then gagged from notifying anybody else. So in the media cases, there's both requests for toll records, likely using a subpoena. Um, those records were success successfully obtained. Um, and then there's also 2703D orders with accompanying 2705B gag orders. And in the case of the Times, they withdrew uh, the email demand. In the case of CNN, they negotiated a, a limited uh, disclosure. All right. So, Oren, do you, in light of what you and Gabe just described, do you look at this pattern and say, wow, this is you know, with Pete, uh, an unprecedentedly broad, uh, aggressive uh, approach to leak investigations, though the leaks themselves may have been unprecedentedly bad, or, you know, that seems to involve, you know, targeting for acquisition media figures and potentially Democratic members of the House Judiciary Committee and their staffs, or do you look at it and say, hey, when the FBI director and the attorney general go out and say, we're doing some serious leak investigations, this is kind of what you should expect the background record pattern to look like? Well, I should start with the important caveat that I have never done a leak investigation. So I have no government experience that touches on leak investigations specifically uh, in my long ago time at the Justice Department. But, you know, I, I, I do have the question of how how's the government supposed to investigate leaks? It seems to me that the way you'd ordinarily want to go about investigating a leak would be to get the non-content records belonging to the suspects, and then you'd go to the judge and get a 2703 due order, and then you'd see who that person's communicating with, and then you'd issue subpoenas to find out who those people are. Those are what the tools would normally be for, and, and so from that sense, what's being described is kind of what the tools are for. And then I think 
you end up with a separate question, which is whether leak investigations are sufficiently different or were sufficiently sensitive to the First Amendment style implications or the general sensitivity of investigating these crimes that we say the normal tools shouldn't be used. These are these are so sensitive, we don't want to use the tools we would normally use in a criminal investigation. And that's a separate question of, of propriety, not legality. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Pete, when you say this is, you know, unprecedentedly broad in your experience, which part of it did you not expect, given what, you know, what had been said publicly by both uh, Attorney General Sessions and by then FBI Director Comey? The breadth is surprising. I don't know that it's necessarily improper. And I mean, look, the backdrop to all this is everybody that the people being investigated tend to or serve process overlay very, very well with Trump's enemies list. And that's the backdrop to all this, right? I mean, that's what's giving everybody at the end of the day a whole lot of concern about whether or not these were appropriate or not and why you know, the tension at the end of the day about on Attorney General Garland about give us enough information to satisfy ourselves that this was appropriate and not a, you know, politically driven enemies list set of investigations and whether or not, you know, a return to the institutional normalcy will give us that information we crave. But eight reporters is a ton. I mean, I worked a lot of media leak investigations for more than a decade and a half. And it was rare. I mean, once every few years where we would clear the hurdle to get process on one attorney. To see that happening with eight simultaneously, and some of the, the devil's in the details, right? I mean, some of this is going to need, you know, I, they, there certainly were or appeared to be 2703D orders that were signed by a judge to the media outlets some of those, you know, the certification is hard for me to say with a straight face to a court that we need a 2705 gag order because it would seriously jeopardize an investigation if it were known the government were seeking the records when the New York Times itself was writing about the fact of the investigation. So what? There's nothing secret left anymore. I mean, the New York Times is reporting the government is investigating the leak of this information and interviewing these people. Who's left to know? What, what, who, why is it going to matter? And the FBI was disclosing, you know, there, there was congressional testimony where people complained rightly, in my view, about the Flynn leaks. And, you know, the FBI director said, I share your anger about it. And, and you know, I, I think said that there were a bunch of leak investigations going on. 
Right. And so in my mind, the one that the, the outlier is the Barbara Star CNN, whatever that article is, because we can all sit here and through the Russia stuff sort of iterate the things where we think, you know, classified might have been released. But, you know, even the kind of the run up in the introduction, like what what was that Barbara Star article? Does anybody really know what that classified information was that she disclosed? And most people don't. So I think you could make a good faith argument that having that requests go out might jeopardize an investigation. But the other one, that argument starts getting a little more tenuous. And there, there are things that I think the IGs look and you know potentially congressional investigation will help that I'm concerned about. One is there's some reporting that investigators and attorneys concluded that these weren't makeable cases, that they weren't prosecutable for whatever reason. And that, you know, Barr has said, well, I was facing a lot of pressure. So I, you know, I put in somebody to to, to figure out why these had become sort of, you know, dormant. And well, they became dormant because there wasn't a case to be made potentially. And so does that, you know, when he places one of his toady, you know, come on down U.S. attorneys in place to quote unquote reinvigorate it, was that proper or not? You know, was there undue political pressure placed upon the attorneys and investigators to go do things that they had already concluded there wasn't a prosecutable case? So, I mean, those that's that's, I guess, at the end of the day, the primary question I am most interested in hearing the answer about. Quinda, let's talk about the congressional reaction. You described at the beginning that uh, members of Congress are irate about their their records having been uh, acquired in the course of these investigations. And yet, as best as I can tell, their response seems to be to demand that the Justice Department investigate it. How do you understand the congressional politics? Right. Before I dive in, I do want to add one thing to to what Pete was just saying, which is that the New York Times also noted that in part, the leak investigation began to raise some eyebrows within the Justice Department because some of the material that had been disclosed in these news reports was later disclosed by the government itself as part of Trump's kind of declassification spree related to the Russia investigation, which I think is just an additional wrinkle it's worth drawing attention to. So over to Congress. As you say, the initial reaction was very much outrage. Chairman Adam Schiff made a statement essentially saying that, you know, that this this was an outrage and that the Justice Department should investigate it and should investigate other cases that, quote, suggest the weaponization of law enforcement by a corrupt president. This then sparked, uh, I guess what I would call a subtweet by Senator Brian Schatz, uh, who essentially said, that he, and I quote, respectfully ask the House not to call for investigations from the executive branch, but rather to do it themselves. I think the the message there is sort of, what do you mean you want the Justice Department to investigate? You're the Intelligence Committee. <laughs> you can investigate yourselves. I will note that as the days have gone on, members of Congress have seemed to be a little more comfortable with sort of maybe starting to think about flexing some muscle. Um, So after the inspector general investigation was announced, Chairman Nadler of the Judiciary Committee said that if the department does not make substantial progress um, in this investigation, that we on the Judiciary Committee will have no choice but to step in and do the work ourselves. I think you could fairly ask 
why don't you just start doing the work yourself now, given that there are limitations in the scope of the inspector general investigation. There's the fact that the inspector general can't compel testimony from former officials, which obviously will maybe to some extent limit what he can do. But so Congress, you know, as this has gone on, has kind of edged closer to making noise and beginning an investigation itself. But so far, it seems to be deferring to the Justice Department and sort of saying, you know, they're thinking about investigations, but they haven't actually started anything yet. Yeah, so I'm I'm perplexed by both Schiff's position and Schatz's. Schiff's position seems to be it's an outrage that the Justice Department acquired material on me and Mike Horowitz should investigate it, which does seem a little oddly passive. But Schott seems to say that Schiff should conduct an investigation of the acquisition of data about Schiff, which seems like a perfect conflict of interest. The the last thing I think the House Intelligence Committee should be investigating is an investigation that touched the House Intelligence Committee. Oren, I'm curious what you think the right answer to this is. If you're, is it an example of Congress should just do the self-help thing and do it itself and flex its institutional muscle? Or is this an example of something that if you do it that way, you get a standoff over, you know, executive branch deliberative materials with the legislative branch, whereas if you kick it to Horowitz, those problems go away and you get the investigative output. So maybe it's better that way. Can, can I just jump in before Oren? Just to, to be clear, Schiff did say on MSNBC that he himself should not be investigating this and that another committee should precisely for the reason that you say, Ben. So I just want to make sure we're fair to him here. Fair enough. Oren? So I I think these sorts of separation of powers fights and tussles are always ones that just kind of are pragmatically resolved best by whoever can get the job done in any given situation. You know, there's so much uncertainty as to exact scope of authority and who can do what best and and all that, that it's, it's, it's a practical on the ground question more than more than an abstract one. So I don't I don't have a great abstract answer, except, you know, it's just what's going to work best now is kind of the is, is the right answer. Pete, what do you think? If you were, in, you're the one of us who's conducted professional investigations on behalf of the United States government, which if you want to get the answers that you want to this, what's the right configuration to do the the investigation? Well, I think there are two issues. One is going to be the legal policy procedure adherence type work that the IG will do. Again, recognizing that's going to take a long time. The broader question about whether or not the balance is right is a political one in many ways, much more than it is a legal one. And so the, the issue is, you know, it ideally you would have the IG complete their work. You would have the inspector general come in and testify about it. And then you could have either follow on congressional hearings or have a debate about it. The problem is that's going to take a long time. I mean, nothing is going to get done in that regard, at least for a year or two. And then, you know, you've got midterm elections, you're right in the middle then of a presidential election and 40 new things have seized the public attention. So I don't know that waiting that long is prudent, but there is, I mean, in my mind, there are questions here that are much greater than 
the nuts and bolts propriety of whether or not the FBI and Department of Justice followed procedures. There, there's a bigger issue here about whether or not, you know, these leaks were bad and whether or not they merited a response this large and whether or not it is appropriate to learn more information from the current Department of Justice and administration about the behavior of the past administration to satisfy ourselves, whether or not this was legitimate or not. Those things are not going to be solved by uh, Mike Horowitz. So I think Congress is the place to do that in conjunction with the media covering it and, and getting into a public national debate about it to the extent we can get people interested in doing that. Gabe, do you think this is the same issue as the media leak side? I mean, there's I, I guess there's two ways to frame this, at least two, right? One is, was the Justice Department using leak investigations as a sort of proxy to conduct at least metadata surveillance on the president's you know, enemies list, press and non-press alike. The second way to frame it is, given the leaks that took place, were these proper investigations, right? And there's a media side of that, and there's a congressional side of that. And I guess my question is, should we see this as one pattern of activity, i.e. acquisition of telephony and email metadata on you know, people who you might think they had no business investigating, or should we see it as two patterns of activity, acquisition of metadata about journalists acting in their capacity as journalists and acquisition of material about members of Congress uh, and their staffs? So I do, I do think that they're, they're different, which is not to diminish, uh, you know, the potential concern that, you know, just the nature of a leak investigation could result in, you know, investigative steps that, you know, that are that are potentially troubling and, you know, that interfere in the free flow of information to the public. But, you know, I, I think here, you know, with respect to the the Apple subpoenas, you know, Apple didn't know that, that, that this material was related to uh, members of Congress. And the nature of the tool that's being used is that that that's quite possible. In the case of the journalists, the Justice Department, you know, has these internal policies in place, you know, precisely because when you go after the metadata of a journalist, you know that you're going after the metadata of a journalist. You're trying to identify the journalist's confidential source. That's the very purpose of getting a subpoena or a deorder, as we saw in, in these three cases. And the policy overlay, you know, is also different. You've got the news media guidelines, which require attorney general approval before before you can seek information from a journalist in leak cases or other cases. Prosecutors need to uh, pursue all uh, reasonable efforts to get it from an alternative source. And then there's that really crucial notice provision, um, which is in place to ensure that in, in all but the most exceptional of cases, the affected journalist or news organization can either negotiate over the, over the scope of the record's demand or can potentially challenge it in court if it's improper. And, and one of the key things there, too, is that that presumption of notice is so important because if you delay notice, 
uh, the bell is rung. The, you know, the Justice Department has the records in hand. And if you're the affected journalist or news organization, there's only so much you can do to, to mitigate, you know, potential harm to other sources, to, you know, ongoing stories that the, the newsroom is looking into that are not the subject of the investigation. So, so I, I, I do think that they raise different issues and should be looked at, looked at differently. And when you look at the media side of it, what are the big questions? I mean, Pete describes this as sort of, he's never heard of a situation where you get eight of these things in in a relatively short period of time. Uh, What are the big questions from your point of view? And what would you need to see in order to answer them? So I think one of the biggest questions is, I think probably the biggest question is, why was notice delayed here? You know, who authorized these? When? Why? And, you know, one of the things that I'm not sure if we talked about yet is the records that were sought from CNN, New York Times, and the Washington Post, those records were all from certain periods in 2017, early in the administration. But we know that the authorization for them uh, was given in 2020 at some point. The CNN Warner Media uh, deorder was uh, was was uh, sent around July, and you know th- there's various aspects of the guidelines that, that you know suggest that authorization was given at some point in in 2020 for the some point later in 2020 for the others. And when you've got records that are three years old, and you're you're authorizing what are supposed to be, and this is said in the guidelines themselves, you know, extraordinary cases, you know, that's one question that's hanging out there. The exceptions in the notice provision for the guidelines, as I said, are, you know, significantly impair the integrity of an investigation, uh, grave harm to national security or potential threat to life and limb. The attorney general needs to make the determination that those exceptions apply before authorizing a delayed notice. And, you know, again, that was one of the innovations in the in the guidelines when they were revised under Attorney General Holder was flipping that presumption of notice. So previously, you could only notify the affected news organization or journalist if you affirmatively made a determination that notice wouldn't cause harm. Whereas under the 2014-2015 revisions, there's now a presumption of notice unless the Attorney General affirmatively determines that some that certain harms would result. So I really think we need the uh, uh, the answer to that question. And then just very quickly, one other one other question is, how do these cases fit into the broader historical trend that we've been you know, seeing in leak investigations where prior to 9-11, you, know, you had one successful prosecution of a journalistic source uh, under the Espionage Act. You had a couple of prosecutions that um, either fell apart or were resolved under, uh, under different charges. You know, since 2009, starting under the Bush administration and then continuing the Obama administration, you've seen, relatively speaking, a significant uptick in the number of leak investigations into journalistic sources. And w- when my my boss, Bruce Brown, and I uh, published that article in, in Lawfare, we said that the Trump administration's record isn't that different from what we've seen under Obama. The Obama administration pursued more leak cases than all other presidencies combined. The Trump administration's record at that at that time was about the same. And you know, are are these 
records requests targeted at members of the news media to secure evidence in leak cases part of that historical trend? Are they something different? You know, how do they fit into that story? All right, Oren, Quinta, and Pete, do any of you want to make the argument contra Gabe that actually we should understand this as one pattern of activity? The media stuff is that Gabe points to is an interesting subset, but actually the the real question we need to answer here, or a real question we need to answer here is whether Pete's earlier framing of it is the right one, that this just maps on too neatly with the former president's uh, list of foes. And we need to satisfy the the fundamental issue here is not the question of continuity or difference between the Obama administration and the Trump administration, but the question of whether the Justice Department was weaponizing law enforcement authorities for purposes of media and congressional opponents or perceived opponents of the administration. I don't necessarily see those two options as in opposition to one another, because you could, I think you could easily say, well, perhaps the Trump administration was essentially going after enemies here, but it was able to do so because of you know the the trend that Gabe has identified and the fact that the justice department's policies on this you know are not particularly rigid one way or another so that you could you might be able to look at it as you know another example of a a sort of Trump era course of action on the part of the executive that is both you know, within a pattern of executive actions and increasing executive power, perhaps over time, and also raises a lot of questions about whether or not Trump and his Justice Department abused those powers. Like to, to me, those seem very tightly woven together as possibilities. You could you could have, you know, the example of the sort of increasing trend of, of leak investigations without necessarily the desire to go after Trump's enemies. But I I don't necessarily think that if there's the latter, we have to discount the former as well, if that makes sense. Oren, what do you think? Yeah, I I, I think that's probably right. That I I think we may not know enough to know whether it's two or one. And so maybe it's just sort of hard to tease those two things out. I, I agree with both Gabe and Pete in thinking that the delayed notice, the 2705B, orders here are really suspicious. They are both in contexts in which the government is obtaining information about people who are opponents of the administration, where it's not obvious what the need is for for the non-disclosure, and the non-disclosure just happens to carry them into the new administration. So that struck me as, as really suspicious. And so I think that should be a big part of it, whether you see this as one or two. Pete, since you framed the the original issue as mapping on to Trump's enemy list, I'll give you the final word on this. When you look at this, do you see the Schiff and Swalwell story as deeply related to the media leak story, or do you see them as separate matters? I see it as a separate matter. I think there is a very... Again, I don't want to 
I want to limit my comments to what I've seen in the media, but I think there are some reasonable arguments being made that the congressional information was obtained through an investigation that was focusing on a particular individual, and they were seeking to understand who that individual was in contact with. And I can see a variety of very legitimate reasons to try and identify those people. Now, any good investigator or prosecutor should know if, in fact, this person, this subject was congressional staff say that if you go looking for their contacts, you better damn well understand that those contacts are probably going to include representatives and other folks, potentially members of the media. So you shouldn't be surprised when you open your email of return, subpoena returns back from Apple, and you see the name Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff popping out at you. And you're sure as heck, if you haven't told your boss's boss's boss, when you see those names staring up at you from your screen, you should immediately, you know, <laughs> let people know that. And the fact if that didn't happen, I'm leave that for the IG to do. But I do see that case, presumably that investigation of a qualitatively different character in terms of, in my mind, potentially greater legitimacy. Now we're all speculating, right? We don't know what's behind any of this, but when I look at the things that, you know, as a citizen, more than as an investigator that offend my sensibilities and that give me concern, it's very much with the media orders and and not as much as with the, the congressional subpoenas that, or the subpoenas that return the names of individuals in Congress. Struck endorses acquisition of data on Swalwell's children. That's the headline. Everybody, everybody is going to hate me, Ben, by the time. <laughs> we are going to leave it there. Pete Strzok, Quinta Jurassic, Oren Kerr, Gabe Rotman, thank you all for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, our audio engineer this episode was Hamza Situ of Goat Rodeo. You need to do your part to promote the Lawfare podcast, so share us on all the socials, leave us a rating and review wherever you found us. Buy our merch at thelawfarestore.com. The Lawfare podcast is produced and edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. And as always, thanks for listening.